Good evening. Good evening. My name is Ryan Long. If we have not had the privilege of meeting, um, I'm fortunate to serve on staff as one of our pastors and overseeing our Next Steps ministry and uh, grateful to serve alongside Caleb and Nick and scores of others um, by way of helping people get on the spiritual pathway, the pathway of growth at Pleasant Valley. Um, of course, you guys are in a series on the promises of God, and as you know, tonight uh, we'll be opening God's Word to Philippians 4.13 that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so this message series has inspired uh, multiple sermons, one of which, of course, Caleb had offered on a Sunday morning a few weeks ago out of Psalm 37. And so would you agree with me that Caleb did an excellent job on that Sunday morning? <clears throat> he did awesome. Uh, there's only there's only one problem with the message, Caleb. Um, as I was listening to it, it was great inspiration. It occurred to me that the focus of that message happens to be the same focus of this message of contentment. And so as he's preaching on contentment, I'm like, what are we going to talk about on July 15th, you know? And so I was tempted for a moment. I'm like, if I were to switch out just the Bible verses and just repeat what Caleb offered, I, would they notice? Would they figure that out? And I was like, this is a smart group. You would say, bad pastor, don't do that. And I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. So, uh, but did an excellent job. And so I look forward to focusing our time on, on contentment. I want to begin with this question, a question of, that you'll be discussing um, at your tables. And the question is this, what is the greatest risk you've taken and why? What is the boldest move you've ever made and what did that moment feel like? Whether that be a move to a new school, uh, maybe that be a transition from one state to another, maybe you engaged in a, a risky activity of some sort, what is the greatest risk, the boldest move that you've ever made? Why? And describe that moment around your table. We'll take two or three minutes to do so. Let me share a story about the, the greatest risk that I've ever taken. Um, it happened to occur the day after my 18th birthday and was organized of, by, of all people, my parents um, who are with us tonight. So I grew up a kid of the 90s, and which saw the, the rise of extreme sports and so this is the era of the X Games, Tony Hawk and others, and I was hooked, uh, whether it be skateboarding or rollerblading or BMX or what have you. Um, I was enamored by each of these activities, but there was one that always seemed a bit out of reach, one in which I never thought that my folks would be on board for, and then skydiving. And so that's something that I had, I had looked forward to uh, throughout my, my teen years, and let me tell you about my mom. My mom is one of the best gift givers I know. She has this very strategic way of mapping out gifts in a very specific order that leads up to this climactic moment. And so my 18th birthday was no different. They insisted on us having a gathering. And so we go through the birthday party um, and giving gifts and opening them and saying thank you. All the while there's this large envelope that's looming at the end. And so we get to the end of opening all these gifts, and I take the envelope, and I open the, the brass clasp, open it up, and I reach in and pull out a piece of paper. Um, it was the last thing I had expected, because weeks prior to that, I had been researching skydiving centers and made the mistake of leaving my research on the family printer. 
And so that had been picked up and led to them purchasing a certificate for me to skydive. In other words, I was going to be jumping the very next morning. So in front of everyone with you know the camera in hand, they got a picture. So my eyes are as big as saucers. My jaw hits the floor. And um, I'm just like enamored by the fact that you know, I'm going to be jumping, you know, the next morning. And so uh, the next morning, the family reconvenes at the local airport. And we have a brief meeting with the, the guy that we would be, I would be jumping with. And we spent you know, 30 minutes or so getting some training. We strapped in and then we went out to the smallest plane I've ever been in and sat opposite of one another, uh, plus a photographer. Um, the propeller starts up and then we get spiraling up to 10,000 feet where, of course, uh, where we would jump. And so it was at that moment, at 10,000 feet, uh, having reached altitude, that uh, he says, are you ready? And so I spin around, and we strap in shoulders and hips um, before he opens the door, and the coldest, harshest wind had I've ever felt just fills the plane. And at this moment, the photographer begins to back up outside of the door, one foot on the frame, one foot in the plane, and begins to hang upside down. And so the guy that I'm, I'm strapped to, he goes, okay, here we go. So we get one foot out of the plane, we got one foot in, it's hand on the frame, and he goes, are you ready? Yes. And then in unison, like we rehearsed, we cartwheel, and he goes, one, two, three, and we leap out of the plane. Uh, the photographer captured a picture of this moment. Um, here's me the day after my, my 18th birthday and uh, dropping through the sky and even got one of those classic kind of high mom moments as I, as I waved at the camera um, and really had uh, just this incredible thrill. It was, it was a rush um, that I will never forget. And so we pulled the chute and then um, I got to steer the, the parachute on the way down and uh, to our family who had, who had welcomed me at, at that moment. Um, it was an incredible moment, a moment that I will, I will never forget. Why do I tell you that story? Today, as we bring our attention to one of the most quoted verses in all of the Bible, Philippians 4.13, a verse that anyone who has gone into a Christian bookstore or spent any time at like a local truck stop would recognize as a verse that's often printed on a coffee cup or on a picture frame intended to offer bite-sized inspiration. But what I believe what we're going to find tonight as we dig into Philippians 4.13 is it offers this great promise. And I believe the story, the story of skydiving, it illustrates two problems we often face when working with Paul's word of gratitude that he offers to the church in Philippi. The first problem is we struggle to properly understand and apply this verse. We, pro- we struggle to properly understand and apply Philippians 4.13. This verse is known as the Superman verse. That means it's often taken to mean that it has superpowers that enables us to accomplish anything that we set our minds to, achieve any goal that we can accomplish, and become anyone that we want to become. Philippians 4.13 is often treated as if it has magic powers that if claimed by faith inherently contains the supernatural ability for us to overcome any obstacle or challenge and build our best lives. We're tempted to treat Philippians 4.13 like an S on our chest. We take this verse that we can do all things without asking the question, 
what are these things? So what are the things that Paul is speaking of? And like someone standing on the edge of an airplane overlooking the ground below, believing that if we claim Philippians 4.13, we can soar in our own strength, losing sight of who it is that we are attached to and who it is who holds our life in his hands. Championship boxer Muhammad Ali was known not only for his incredible athleticism, but also his over-the-top rhetoric and outrageous statements such as, I am the greatest. I said that even before I knew I was. How about this one? It's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. It's not bragging if you can back it up. And here's my favorite. If you even dream of beating me, you better wake up and apologize. I like that one. There's a story of Ali on an airplane during a flight where the plane encountered some turbulence. The passengers were instructed to fasten their seatbelt, and Ali didn't comply. And then a flight attendant approaches him and says, we need you to fasten your seatbelt. And his response was, Superman doesn't need a seatbelt. And without missing a beat, the attendant says, Superman doesn't need an airplane either. <laughs> this is how we can be tempted to treat Philippians 4.13 like Muhammad Ali standing over his opponent in victory, because of this verse, the Christian can stand over and conquer any challenge in his or her own strength. But because of the context of Philippians 4.13, we know that Paul had something different in mind when he says that I can do all things. And we're going to ask this question, what are these things? And the answer to that question is contentment, which brings us to our second problem. We struggle with contentment. We struggle with being content. As a teenager, like I said, I experimented with different sports and activities. Uh, football and baseball, rollerblading, BMX, skateboards, that kind of thing. Uh, I even snowboarded, uh, snowboarded for a bit. Never really satisfied, uh, kind of always seeking another thrill or another rush. Um, here, even a couple times, and this is when my, my parents maybe need to close their ears, but a couple of times I went to some street races, you know, enjoyed that. I don't know if any of you guys ever have ever done that. But um, none of that really ever, ever was satisfying to the point that I had to graduate to skydiving in order to feel like I was going to satisfy what I was searching for. And this is, this is a former life. This is much different than the life that my wife and I live with four young children and two minivans and eight car seats. I mean, this is, this is before Jesus as well. But the problem is because of the God-sized vacuum in the human heart, we struggle with feeling satisfied, often seeking to fill the void, whether that be experiences like me or a litany of other things. When The truth is, as we're going to see in Philippians, the answer is ultimately Christ. It is through Jesus that we gain the strength to be content regardless of our circumstances. As we take a deeper look at this well-known verse in context, my desire for our time together tonight is that we would no longer look at Philippians 4.13 to magically satisfy our desires, but like Paul, we would find strength in the satisfaction that Christ alone provides, that we would find strength in the satisfaction that Christ alone provides. So let me ask this question, a question that you're going to discuss around your tables. What are the marks of dissatisfaction in your life? What are the marks of dissatisfaction in your life? What are the key indicators of discontentment? 
when you sense that there is a measure of discontent in your life, how is that known? How do you, how do you sense that, that that to be the case? So I want you to address that question around your tables, and we'll discuss for a few minutes. All right, let's bring it in. <clears throat> Before we go any further on addressing, addressing Philippians 4.13, let's take a look at the context. The Apostle Paul wrote the letter to, to the Philippians during his first imprisonment in Rome, planting the church in Philippi during his second missionary journey. And there were, uh, the Philippian church, they were very generous and they were very loyal to Paul. In Philippians 3 and 4, we see Paul, he exhorts readers in several ways to avoid false teachers, to rejoice, to not worry, asserting that prayer, petition, and gratitude lead to peace with God, and focusing on that which is honorable. In Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13, the focus of tonight, Paul thanks the Philippians for their financial support. Their generosity uplifted Paul in a time of need as the church sent money and a trusted servant, Epaphroditus, to support Paul. Paul sees the opportunity to share the rewards of generosity and instruct the Philippian believers in Christian living. The Philippian church had matured regarding material possessions, knowing how to give out of poverty, and it knew the importance of supporting the gospel and those who proclaim it. So we're going to read through Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. It says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little. I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or need. I am able to do all things through Him who strengthens me. That brings us to our first point. Contentment in Christ is learned. Contentment in Christ is learned. Look at verses 11 and 12 once again. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know how to make do with little. I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Two times, as you see, Paul says that he learned contentment. In other words, it was a process. Him achieving contentment was a process. It wasn't like Paul went to bed one evening feeling dissatisfied and unsettled and then magically woke up the next morning feeling whole and content. No, it was a learning process that was marked by both abundance and need, a little and a lot. It was in the classroom of prosperity and the classroom of poverty where Paul learned that Christ alone was sufficient. Paul knew what it was like to interact with the wealthy. In Acts 16, we see, we see Paul interact with Lydia, who was a dealer in purple cloth, purple being a, a status symbol of the elite. And Paul also knew what it felt like to lack the critical resources and experience hardship as he shares to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 4.11. Up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed. We are treated um, excuse me, roughly treated, we're homeless. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 4 and 5. 
Instead, as God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything by great endurance, by afflictions, by hardships, by difficulties, by beatings, by imprisonments, by riots, by laborers, by sleepless nights, by times of hunger. Paul he had lessons in lacking, knowing from firsthand experience the pangs of hunger, the feeling of needing refreshment, having nowhere to lay his head, and what it felt like to not have enough clothes to even cover his own body. But he also had lessons in wealth, and it is in the classroom of abundance that we undergo the temptation of greed. As in the school of prosperity, we learn from Paul that having wealth does not come without its own sets, set of challenges, its own set of difficulties. Paul, instructing Timothy, his young protege in the faith, offers a warning and instruction when he says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And he goes on. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to be instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Here Paul brings to mind the temptations of arrogance, misplaced hope, not enjoying that which God provides for our pleasure, lacking good works, lacking generosity, being earthly-minded over investing in God's kingdom, and living a false, shallow, and hollow life. The school of prosperity is one method that God uses to teach us the lesson of contentment in Christ alone, the outcome of a learning process that does not magically occur overnight. One lie that I believe that we can be tempted to, to an eb- exhibit, that having wealth is inherently bad, or having wealth is the outcome of only selfish and greedy desires. And unless we are tempted to believe that, we can take note from Paul's life, who he knew abundance, that there is nothing inherently wrong with wealth unless it has first place in our life. Pastor Merle recently spoke on the topic of contentment. There is nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with having possessions unless your wealth and your possessions possess you. There's nothing bad about wealth unless pursuing it has become more important than the pursuit of God in your life. There is nothing wrong with wealth unless you desire it so much that you have lost your contentment in God alone. Some of you have felt the pangs of hunger and the pain of thirst as Paul did. But for most, the truth is that we are born into the school of prosperity by virtue of being born in this country. I was fortunate enough to spend a week in India about five years ago 
and witness firsthand poverty that pales into comparison to what we often think of poverty here in the U.S. And the reality is many, by the virtue of being born here, whether we realize it or not, we are enrolled in the school of prosperity. And as Pastor Merle said, there's nothing wrong with wealth unless it possesses us to the point where we've lost our contentment in Christ. I'm going to make the assumption that the majority of us did not wake up this morning in Paul's condition of hunger, thirst, nakedness, and homelessness. And to the extent that you and I are currently enrolled in the school of prosperity, let me ask these questions, rhetorical questions. What is the lesson God is teaching you in this season of good fortune? Assuming that your critical needs are taken care of, what are you learning about the sufficiency of Jesus at a time of abundance? To what extent do possessions possess you? To what extent has the love of money or things captured your affections in place of Jesus? My encouragement, my challenge to you and I tonight is that we would not coast through the classroom of prosperity, the classroom of comfort, having not learned anything. Like the student whose parent asks them, son, what did you learn today? I don't know, nothing. Let us not coast to the classroom of comfort. Instead, like Paul, seize the opportunity of abundance and draw lessons that lead to contentment in God alone. In addition to the school of prosperity, the school of poverty also provides lessons. Likewise, just like the school of prosperity, testing us for greed. The sin of greed is most often associated with those in abundance. But greed, it is a universal temptation. It also includes those in need, giving rise to the temptation of sin in order to experience wealth, whether that be lying or stealing or manipulating others. Those with lesser means can become envious and jealous of others, which, of course, is sin revealing what has captured the affections of one's heart. Greed at its root, it is a matter of the heart and does not spontaneously go away if someone were to transition from one socioeconomic class to another. Those enrolled in the school of poverty have the identical temptation of losing their contentment in Christ if they should, if you and I should experience wealth if we should experience abundance. As Paul modeled for the church in Philippi, we should aim not for wealth, not for opulence, nor should our goal to be impoverished or lacking, lest we are tempted to sin in order to acquire wealth. Rather, our goal should be a life marked by contentment in Christ that brings God glory and gives rise to others applauding Jesus in view of the joy and satisfaction that we find in Him alone. Amen? The writer of Hebrews, excuse me, the writer of Proverbs says in chapter 30, verses 7 through 9, two things I ask of you. Don't deny them before I die. Keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. 
Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of my God. Contentment in Christ is learned, as we see both in Proverbs, but also in Philippians, in both the school of prosperity, but also the school of poverty. There are lessons learned and temptations to be guarded against in both classrooms, whether it be the temptation to reject God and turn your back on Him because of wealth, or warp your witness by harming others in order to get ahead. The writer of Proverbs challenges us to seek only what we need and keep God in the foreground of our affections. Our family has been in the process of learning contentment in Christ that Paul speaks of, especially over the last uh, several months, um, having been enrolled in both the school of poverty, but also the school of prosperity, and not in its extremes, but in moderation, right in the middle there. And, and we, have, we have drawn lessons from, from both classrooms over the last several months. Um, May of 2020 marked a new season for our family. Um, our fourth child had just turned two, and uh, that month I had completed a degree program. And it was a significant transition because in graduation, um, it freed up a tremendous amount of energy and focus that was, of course, uh, committed, to, uh, committed to my studies. But one of the realities of being enrolled during such an intense time is that there are areas of our life that had been neglected, uh, friendships and physical exercise and so forth. But unfortunately, one of those areas was our finances. And I'm not talking about complete abandon of our finances. I'm talking about skimming. You know, like when you mow, and, but you don't weed eat, you skip that. Or you organize and you just kind of rearrange the clutter, but you never really get rid of anything, you know, that kind of skimming. Um, the reality is that, that we were skimming. And you know all the critical needs were, were being cared for, all the major decisions were being made, uh, but we just never felt like we, 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 were, making, we were making any progress. Uh, just fine handling medium-sized problems, like the time when the dishwasher went out. So we go and we get that fixed. Uh, but because of skimming, we were not positioned to absorb any large expenses. Uh, such as a neighbor of mine who was recently quoted $15,000 in, in plumbing repair. Nor were we able to be as generous um, as we aspire. So what began the week of graduation was a personal campaign. And I went on a war path, spending my first week after graduation building a tracking system with more precise analysis. So if you geek out on spreadsheets like we were just talking a second ago, right? Charts and graphs. Um, like bloodhounds, my wife and I, we began sniffing out every little ounce of inefficiency or waste, eliminating any bit of ineffective spending. And like a sniper, we were just on a war path taking out one expense after another. And we had our eye on the goal of achieving a, a specific emergency savings as a percentage of our annual expenses. So if you're familiar with like Financial Peace University and Dave Ramsey, kind of that model, our goal, we had a large savings goal. And I won't forget that there was a moment deep into this multi-month process where I realized that we were going to meet our goal, that it was just a matter of time that 
the, the pieces were in place that it was going to occur. It was just a matter of that moment coming. And as that moment, as that finish line was approaching, I found myself asking this question. I wonder how long that feeling of satisfaction will last. When we reach that goal of having deepened our savings to a point where we have uh, more stability, how long will that feeling of satisfaction last? And I'll never forget, there was a Saturday morning, we sit down for our weekly financial goals conversation. We reached our goal and we're high-fiving and celebrating. And you know how long that feeling lasted? Probably about two days. Probably about 48 hours. After months and months of good work, necessary work that needed to be done, that are proud of, sacrifices that we made and our children made, two days is how long that feeling of satisfaction lasted because, of course, it was temporary. But more convicting along the way is I learned in this process of how prone I am to jealousy, how prone I am to envy. And am I the only one that's tempted by those two sins? I, I, don't, I don't believe that's the case. I don't think I'm alone in this room. But because we're on this war path and we're grinding through this goal, we're also doing life alongside other families who, at least on the surface, appear as if they have just an, an easier situation. Whether that be comparing ourselves to another young family whom uh, one of the adults is employed with an organization that my wife was previously employed at, and this family is not at PV, um, none of you guys know them, but it's kind of public knowledge that, that they're doing quite well. It's, it's kind of stated pretty openly. Or the temptation to compare myself to my friend whom we had both graduated from a school years and years ago before ministry. Again, you've not met this family um, before we made a switch to ministry. And so we're graduates from the same school three months apart. And as we interact with their family, um, we, we get to learn of all of these incredible toys that their family has and uh, with more than enough to entertain um, their family each and every weekend. And so um, the reality is, um, you know, as I was engaging, as we were engaging in this process over these past 15 months, um, I began just to face the harsh reality um, that I really struggle with, with jealousy and envy far more than, than I ever had. And so there were moments, uh, especially preparing for this message, that I find myself needing to confess, to confess the sin of jealousy and confess the sin of envy. As we said earlier, Caleb spoke uh, on this topic both here and then on Sunday morning out of Psalm 37 when he says, how do we fight envy? How do we resist the promises of Satan? How do we fight envy with a superior promise? Excuse me. We fight envy with a superior promise, a superior pleasure. And that superior promise is that God is enough. God is the only one who will ultimately satisfy us. God is the only one who can fully and truly forgive us and give us lasting joy. Delighting in God means trusting that God is enough. And by delighting in God, we can be even more deeply satisfied in the other things of this world that we desire. Does this describe you? Are you finding your ultimate satisfaction in Christ alone? Do you trust that God is enough, 
Or do you search out satisfaction in other ways because of the sin of jealousy or the sin of envy? Do you find deepening satisfaction in the other things of this world because your ultimate satisfaction is found in Jesus alone? Again, while preparing for this message, I had to find myself facing those hard realities of jealousy and envy uh, ushered into the door of focusing very heavily on our circumstances over this past year. Which brings us to the next point that Paul makes in Philippians 4. We're going to return to verses 11 through 12. It says, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little. I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. Woven throughout this passage, Paul underscores that his level of contentment did not change with his level of material possessions and financial provision. His internal state, that of peace, fulfillment, delight in Christ, it was impenetrable by his external situation. While the tide in resources, while the tide of resources and sustenance would rise and fall around him, Paul personally knew the calm internal seas of peace and tranquility because his affections were anchored to the person and work of Christ. Can you imagine with me the potential to inspire and challenge a, a world who watches us, who watches Christ followers? And imagine if we were known for being rock solid and consistent in our confidence in Christ. We were not prone to being tossed back and forth by the fluctuations of the circumstances around us. Imagine a time when the economy, as it's going through these massive swings and oscillating between extremes, the church became known for being the community who is stable because of its deep trust in God and even increased its generosity. I believe that would be a winsome and compelling witness for the cause of Christ. The truth is, we, like Paul, have reason for such confidence, whatever financial situation that we find ourselves, because we share the same source of hope, and that is Jesus. My wife and I, Emily, uh, we work hard at finding shows that we both like, uh, which is rare because we both like such different programs. And so, like Emily, uh, she likes uh, Supermarket Sweep and Fuller House. So those shows are kind of making a little bit of a comeback. Or for me, it's anything nerdy, like Ken Burns' documentary on baseball or Civil War or something like that. If, it's, if you geek out on it, like, I'm on board. But we recently started to watch the show Hoarders. Perhaps you're familiar with that show. If you've seen the show, you know that it traces a family through the process of seeking help in a desperate situation where a loved one has amassed uh, enough items to be a risk to themselves. And one reason why that we like the show is because it models compassion as the counselors, they come alongside the person seeking help who is often struggling with, with mental health. 
And at the end of each episode, they share the progress with viewers, a little status update. And the most uplifting episodes, if you're familiar with the program, are those who find healing, that they continue the treatment and they just have a brand new experience from that point forward. But there are many heartbreaking episodes that end with the person rejecting the treatment and reverting back to the same tendencies that they had before. Now let me be clear. Hoarders is focused on addressing mental health and neither Paul nor I are addressing mental health. I'm not a trained clinical psychologist or therapist or counselor, and it's obvious that hoarding as a disorder is a real and challenging mental health problem for some. But it, the show does provide you and I an image of the human heart, illustrating that changing our circumstances without changing our mind is ultimately no change at all. The problem is changing your circumstances without turning from old ways, old patterns of thinking, turning and trusting in Christ alone. It does not lead to true and lasting change. We accumulate for ourselves. We experience abundance. It doesn't satisfy. We eliminate, we clear out. It doesn't satisfy. And in the vacuum, without Christ, we are at risk of returning to the same old patterns, seeking to refill the same void. Maybe you can identify with this poem uh, written written by Jason Lehman. It says, It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool dry air. It was autumn, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted. The freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted. To be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 30 I wanted. The youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged that I wanted. The presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. Can you identify with that poem? I'd imagine that many of in this room at some level can identify with those words. So let me ask these questions. What are the things or people that you believe if you had less of, if they were removed from your life, then you would find true satisfaction? Maybe it is a troubling relationship that if this person would just be out of my way, then I would be happy. Maybe it's a health challenge. If I could just find that magic pill or treatment, then I would be happy. Maybe it's an issue at work. If that customer or client would just go elsewhere, then I would be happy. What are the things that if you believed, if you had more of, then you would find real peace? Maybe it's social status. If I was just accepted by that friend group, then I would be happy. Maybe it's influence. If I just had that level of authority, then I would be content. And maybe, as Paul signals, it is specifically money. If I just got to this salary, then I would be truly satisfied. The lie is those external things, whether accumulated 
or eliminated will not ultimately make us content. Excuse me. The lie is those things either accumulated or eliminated that they will make us content. That's the lie. And the truth is neither more or less of anything, any earthly desire will bring us the deep satisfaction that we long for. The writer of Hebrews speaks to this topic when he says, excuse me, when the writer says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said that I will never leave you or forsake you. The writer of Hebrews, he echoes, excuse me, the writer echoes Paul, exhorting readers that if we choose to be satisfied with what God has provided, forsaking the love of money that God promises to remain alongside. So let me ask these questions. These aren't rhetorical. These are questions that will be discussed at your tables. What are you most tempted to believe that a change in circumstances will offer satisfaction? What area are you most tempted to believe that a change in circumstances will offer satisfaction? Is it relationships? Is it career? Is it finances? Is it health? What is that category that if it just changed, if it just upgraded, then I would find true satisfaction? Discuss that around your tables. And finally, as we, as we actually approach the verse this evening, Philippians 4.13, um, it says, As you know, that I am able to do all things through Him who strengthens me. Which brings us to the final point, that contentment in Christ is the outcome of a relationship. Contentment in Christ is the outcome of a relationship that leads to strength. Earlier we said that contentment in Christ, it is learned, shaped by the schools of prosperity and the school of poverty. And what is it that Paul learned? Paul claims to have learned, as he puts it, the secret, but this is not top secret. His secret is not kept under lock and key behind closed doors and selfishly kept to himself. No, Paul, he is generous with the secret and he chooses to share it with his readers. It is a public secret. And so what is the secret? Well, let's begin by asking, by answering the question of what the secret is not. In 2006, author Rhonda Byrne published a self-help book titled The Secret, based on the law of attraction, claiming that thinking about certain things will make them appear in one's life. Uh, Oprah interviewed Rhonda Byrne on her show, I presume, years, years ago, when it, was, uh, when it was first coming out, and so it provides an opportunity for Rhonda to explain uh, the, the purpose of her book. And so I'm just going to read Rhonda's explanation and then Oprah's response. Rhonda Byrne says, The law of attraction I would describe as the most powerful law in the universe. Remember, this is in the book, The Secret. And it is the law by which we are creating our lives. So whether we realize it or not, the law of attraction is working all of the time. Now clearly, if you do not want... Clearly, if you do not know what the law does, then you may not be creating the life you want. The law of attraction says that like attracts like, and what we do, and what we do is we attract into our lives the things that we want, and that is based on what we are thinking and feeling. It is not the other way around. 
And then Oprah responds, so what you're saying is that we all, human beings here on earth, we create our own reality. We create our own circumstances. We create our own circumstances by the choices that we make. And the choices we make are fueled by our thoughts. And so our thoughts are the most powerful thing that we have here on earth. Did you hear that? Our thoughts are the most powerful thing that we have here on earth. Based upon what we think and what we think determines who we are, we attract who we are in our lives. Is that what you're saying? Rhonda says, it's exactly right. The Secret has sold 30 million copies worldwide and has been translated into 50 languages. And it is a lie. The world's secret is that you can create your own reality, improving your own circumstances, and find strength in increased health and increased wealth. The world's secret is the lie that you can be like God. It's appealing on the surface, and you can see why people would be attracted to this type of thinking. But it is diametrically opposed to the secret that Paul invites the Philippians to embrace. Not a law, but a person, Jesus Christ himself. But before you and I act superior to this false wisdom in that book, are we tempted to treat Philippians 4.13 in a similar way? We claim it as a promise to improve our circumstances and overcome any obstacle. Earlier we said one of the problems we encounter with Philippians 4.13 is Christians, you and I, we misapplying the verse. And it's clear to us that the law of attraction is the world's wisdom. But haven't Christians been guilty of using this verse as a law that is leveraged to serve our own needs? What if we saw Philippians 4.13 for the gem that it truly is? an encouragement to trust in Christ alone for our satisfaction, giving rise to the reason why Paul can meaningfully say, I can do all things. In closing, my challenge to us is that we would no longer use Philippians 4.13 and get caught, excuse me, we would not get caught in the trap of smuggling in worldly wisdom and reduce God to a mere law a little G God whom we can tame and control and leverage for our benefit. But instead, like Paul, we would find true satisfaction not in merely upgrading our circumstances, but in union with Christ. What is the secret to contentment? In Philippians 3, verses 7 through 8, Paul provides his resume. Confidence in the flesh, as he puts it. And then he contrasts his resume with these words. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I might gain Christ. What is the secret to true contentment? John Piper answers this question referencing this passage when he says, my paraphrase, 
The secret of Christ-exalting contentment in abundance and poverty, in pleasure and pain, in seeing and savoring, treasuring, enjoying, being satisfied in Christ himself as supremely valuable, beautiful, great, all-satisfying, coming to a position where in your soul the world has lost its power to addict you to its pleasures because Christ is superior. That, my friends, is the secret to true contentment and the catalyst for why Paul can say, and you and I can affirm, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you once again, uh, first and foremost, for your Son, for the riches of Christ, whom you have offered as a gift, a lamb that was slain for the forgiveness of sin, and buried that came back to life to offer us a pathway to you. Lord, we thank you for the example that he offers, being fully satisfied and content in and of himself. And equally, we thank you for the example that Paul provides his readers and provides us by way of not being swayed by his circumstances, but finding the deepest source of satisfaction in Jesus alone. Lord, may we receive his encouragement and his challenge afresh. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.